This show is sponsored in part by Insynergy for personalized addiction care. At Insynergy, you'll find quality addiction care that is personalized and evidence-based. They have a comprehensive approach with a wide range of options. If you or someone you know is struggling with addiction, contact Insynergy for a same-day or next-day consultation. Call them at 314-649-STOP. That's 314-649-STOP. Or visit them at InSynergySTL.com. That's Insynergy for personalized addiction care. This is The Medical Beat on 97.1 FM Talk. All right. Hey, good morning, everybody. Uh, this is The Medical Beat, 97.1 FM Talk. I'm your host, Dr. Steve Harvey, and we're going to have a good day. Um, the show today is going to be all about the mental health of school kids, uh, the mental health of our kids, you know, especially as it relates to their experience in school. Um, really, nowadays, you know, more, more so than before, you know, with online learning and kids being separated from their friends, you know, that, that's got to be got to be rough on the kids or, or at least weird. Uh, so we're going to talk about that. You know, what is this? What are these recent times like for the kids? Uh, what's it been like for the teachers? And uh, and what is it that we can do to, to try to create a healthy learning environment for the kids so that they can have, you know, the, the best experience and the best education that, that we can give them uh, in school? And, uh, you know, as far as education and mental health, Today, we have the perfect guest to talk about this. Uh, we have uh, Dr. Bri Dr. Brian Perlman. Uh, Dr. Perlman is a former school teacher, a former school principal. Uh, he works as an educational consultant and speaker, and he's also a therapist. So in his spare time, and I, I chuckle at the term spare time. How does he have any spare time? In his spare time, he writes really good books. Uh, he recently published uh, a book, which is uh, moving up in the ratings on Amazon, and the book is called Maslow Before Bloom, and we're going to talk about that. So, hello, Dr. Perlman. How are you doing? Dr. Harvey, I am doing great. How are you doing, my friend? I'm doing well, thank you. I'm I'm really, really glad to have you on the show today. I'm, I'm this This is great, yeah. Glad to have you here. So, hey, we, we want to kind of start by talking about your book. Now, I, I got to admit, I, I had to, I, the, the title of the book is Maslow Before Bloom. And I, I knew who Maslow was. I, I didn't know who Bloom was. I had to Google that one. Can, can you, for the sake of the audience, can you explain who is Maslow, who is Bloom, and, and what, it, what does the title of your book mean? to educators. Oh, that's great. Yeah. If you did a Google search on Bloom, you could have found like four or 500 different people. Uh, but the, the, the significance <laughs> yeah. of Maslow before Bloom is the notion uh, that Abraham Maslow uh, was a psychologist uh, for a long time uh, since, since deceased, as is Benjamin Bloom is the other part of that title. He's more of an educational uh, psychologist. And the significance, uh, you'll see on social media, particularly Twitter, uh, you know, it, using that Maslow before Bloom is kind of uh, one of those hashtags that educators use. And really kind of boiling that down is this notion in education or working with kids that we have to focus on the basic human needs first. 
and then we can get to academics. And really what that means is if there's a student that has a, a significant mental health concern, we need to kind of help and address that. If it's anxiety, if it's depression, if it's any number of things, if it's trauma-related, that the more that we can do to help that student in that area, the more successful they're going to be in the academic piece. When we see students, particularly those uh, with behavior concerns or those that are not performing, we know that, you know, now we know. Back in the day, we didn't really know what was going. It kind of blame the kid or blame the behavior. But really what the focus now is to really figure out what the underlying cause is. And, you know, Maslow is really famous. You know, his, his greatest work or one of his more significant works was this whole notion of hierarchy of needs and looking at kind of like a pyramid, working your way up as people progress through having like physiological things addressed and then safety and love and esteem and then finally self-actualization. And the belief is in order to move up the pyramid, you have to have that solid foundation. That's kind of the Maslow uh, before Bloom. Yeah. And with, with uh, Bloom, he was uh, well known for his taxonomy of learning. And it's actually interesting because he also has his own pyramid. And as you work your way up, it's from things simple like remembering basic facts to understanding, to applying, to analyzing, to evaluating, and then to creating something uh, new and exciting. So really the, the title of the book is just this notion that we have to address the Maslow needs first. It's really important that we do that um, in doing that as a team between educators and you know, uh, within the school, you know, counselors and social workers and outside resources, if we can help the students, then we can really, it's, it's like unlimited potential for them to work their way up to their uh, greatest achievement or academic. So that's kind of where that came yeah. from. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, so two, two things, I guess one, one thing I'm wondering, and we, we might need to save this topic for a different day, but I, I wonder why so many favorites, why so many famous psychologists are into pyramids, you know, why pyramids, why not a rectangle or a poly or a, a pentagon or, you know what I mean? Why, why a pyramid? But anyway, but why not a rhombus? We'll save so we could throw rhombus. Yeah. <laughs> a rhombus. We can Why could a it be, psychiatrist yeah. and educate therapist yeah. together. We'll come up with our own shape. <laughs> we, we we should do that. Yeah. I mean, why not Maslow's rhombus? You know, I, I don't get it. But anyway, well, well, probably that'll be another show. But so so. But anyway, um, I guess the other thing is, is it sounds like what you're saying, and, and this totally makes sense uh, to most of us. I think is like if a, you know, for example, if a kid is hungry all day in school he's probably not going to be a good student or if it's if a kid's being mistreated at home or if they just have a bad problem with anxiety or depression or whatever probably they're going to do poorly in school so anything the school can do to to help meet those needs will also help them as far as education is that is that the gist of it you are spot on you have hit it the nail on the head that the thought process is you know, there are things that we can even be doing in the schoolhouse. Look, the, the, a teacher prep program, even programs for school administrators, there isn't a lot of depth in their learning that hit on things to do with mental health and trauma. It's getting better. I mean, I teach two courses on this uh, at a local university, rewrote the course over the last uh, year and a half or so, and put more of this information, more about trauma, more about behaviors into the coursework, there really isn't much that a teacher principal goes through. They'll take child or adolescent psych, 
and they'll take Ed Psych of the Exceptional Child. That's it. There's not a lot of, uh, of prep work. Yeah. So one of the things that we're trying to do, certainly we don't want teachers or principals to become, you know, psychologists, just, you know, practicing without yeah. a license. But having that awareness yeah. that if somebody's hungry, just like you said, feed them. If a kid hasn't slept right. in three days, you know, there's nothing wrong with letting the kids take a nap in the nurse's office or for the younger kids, have a beanbag in the back of the room. Uh, if they're scared, you know, you can give some reassurance. You can give, if they need love, you can give them, well, pre-COVID, you could give them a hug. I don't really know. Maybe a virtual right. hug would be okay right now. But I think you yes. hit the nail on the head. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So there's so many things we can be doing to, to help meet their basic needs. So, yeah. So, uh, anyway, I think uh, I think we're getting close to break time there. So we're uh, when we come back, uh, we're going to talk more about uh, Maslow before Bloom, uh, what we can do to help uh, help meet the kids' basic needs through the schools and, and how that might help uh, their education. And in just a little bit, we'll be right back. To the medical beat. All right, we're back. You're listening to the medical beat 97.1 FM talk. I'm your host, Dr. Steve Harvey, and we have with us Dr. Brian Perlman, who is an expert in education and also a therapist and many other things. And he's here talking about his new book, Maslow Before Bloom. And if you missed the first part of this, I guess Maslow before Bloom is, uh, I guess, a phrase that people, for people who work as teachers, it's probably kind of obvious what that means. Uh, to people like me who are not teachers, it, it was not so obvious. But the, the gist of it is that it's important to meet the basic needs of kids before they can really, uh, before it's easy for them to learn. Um, but let's uh, let's get back to Dr. Perlman here. I guess just to start with, can you kind of tell us what what is it that gave you the idea or or the inspiration uh, to write Maslow Before Bloom? You know, Dr. Harvey, that's a, a great question. Uh, it's kind of interesting, and and we'll I'm sure touch later on about my first book. But um, I thought my first book was it. I thought that was it. It was great. We're good to go. And uh, uh -huh. my wife, Dr. Lena Perlman, the therapist in town, mm -hmm. uh, had been encouraging me uh, to write book number two. And as I was, you know, framing it together, it just kind of one night came to me that this notion of Maslow before Bloom, uh, really thinking about it, that it would be so important to spread the word to more educators who maybe aren't as familiar with this, administrators, counselors, social workers, and, and everybody, even outside of education, to kind of better understand that, you know, for the longest time in education, uh, I mentioned earlier, it was kind of like blame the kid, right? The kid's yeah. acting out, can't concentrate, kids, you know, belly aching about something, blame the kid, blame the house, blame society, whatever. And playing the blame game doesn't really help. I'm really all about uh, positive outcomes and things that are effective. And it just kind of all these ideas I had and had and all these stories that, you know, I had lived through as a, as a teacher in my own life and as an administrator really was like, if, if I had thought about Maslow before Bloom way back in the day, I think outcomes would have even been uh, that much better. But really helping people 
even within our fields, who don't fully appreciate that impact of, you know, the basic human needs before academics. And there are still educators out there who are more of a fixed mindset or traditional model of, well, the way I went to school was this way, and that really worked well for us, which I could argue, I don't know that it worked really well for all of us. So just having the understanding that these pieces, if they're addressed well, kids will achieve to a higher level. I tie in in my stories quite a bit. At one point, I was as a principal, I probably suspended more kids in a year than anybody did. And it was like the definition of insanity because I would keep sending kids home and somehow, some way, expecting that they were going to come back to school better. And, and Dr. Harvey, that, that literally never happened. Ah, so right. I really feel oh. like a lot of the motivation is to help others learn from some of the successes that I had in this field for a long time, but also, maybe more importantly, learn from the mistakes that I made before I fully understood the impact of mental health, the impact of trauma, the role that we have to play wearing the multiple hats with the ultimate goal of helping every kid to achieve to their highest potential. Yeah. And how does that, how does that actually play out in the school? You know, cause I, I, I guess, you know, the teachers are, you know, of course, very busy teaching their subjects. What, what, what kinds of things can they do uh, to, to help the kid with, uh, with the Maslow needs? You know, it, it all starts with, as simple as this sounds, it all starts with the relationship. It all starts with the connection. It starts with really um, having that high empathy, having that compassion, having that desire to, to get to know the kids and to help them uh, to progress to their highest level. I am asked, you know, I travel all over the country talking to schools and districts and organizations on items very related uh, to this, and I'll get the question of, how am I supposed to have time to do this? And I'll argue back, how do you not have the time to do this? That if you're looking for ways for kids to achieve and for the class environment to, to be the best that it can be, putting in the, the work, even the little things that you can do to tweak things will pay off very high dividends um, at the end. And just it, it's just kind of looking for other ways. I, I do a problem-solving process when I'm out in, in schools, and it is covered uh, in the book, where we do kind of sit down and get to know and figure out what's going on uh, with the student and then look for things that could be done. Some kids need extra movement, right? There's all kinds of oh, research yeah. now that they say sitting is like worse for you than smoking. I mean, it's like got such negative health impact. So somebody yeah. who may have an attentional type of concern, building more movement breaks in during the, during the day, let the kid get up and move. Uh, maybe giving them more responsibility than we feel like they've earned, but building that responsibility makes someone have a more positive uh, self-image. They're able to get out and connect with other people and building those relationships, and it's giving them hope because for so many of our kids, whatever that home circumstance, or maybe they're struggling in school, you find that people are lacking in hope. And big picture-wise in society, one of the top reasons or, or big reason why people do self-harming things or even contemplate mm-hmm. suicide is because they're hopeless. These th- yeah. types of things you can just bake right into the ingredients. Just bake it into your school day. I'm not looking for people to extend the day or have to come up with a program or a binder or put in a lot more work. I don't really believe 
that it does any of those things. It's just really being aware, being really deliberate, and really having the mindset of this is what's best for kids. If I invest here, the outcomes are going to be better. Uh, so, so a lot of these are things that uh, the teachers or, or the school systems can do, you know, possibly without any extra burden. It might just be something something they need to have a bigger awareness of to, to succeed at. I believe so. I mean, I have uh, plenty of things in this book and, and also in my first book of things that I did. I'm, I'm the type of person, uh, Dr. Harvey, that if I don't like something or I don't like the outcomes, I'm going to try anything and everything that I can to get better outcomes. And it could be something as simple as kids misbehaving in the lunchroom or being disrespectful and presenting to them that this isn't working. I have to feed you, but I don't have to let you, you know, being in the lunchroom is a privilege. Now you guys have to come up with some way to spend your time and having a group of boys who thought about maybe we should knit. Well, what would you want to knit? Well, my little nephew was in the NICU that, you know, in the hospital. And um, mm-hmm. it's important now, uh, maybe they're running out of those hats. So maybe we could start a little boys knitting group to make those little preemie hat things, right? So the, the yeah. baby's heads could be worn. And just doing something like that, literally, we had a volunteer, things were donated, it cost us nothing. And the outcomes were incredible for that group of kids. I did a morning uh, martial arts group. I had the assistance of a former USC fighter in town who joined me in that program, and then a, another MMA person joined and took over. And we brought a group of, of boys, then boys and girls together, um, just to build that team and that community, and that we're counting on each other, and that that mentality that a lot of these kids don't have that available to them. So again, that little bit of out of the box thinking, that little bit of creativity, the outcomes were incredible, almost a hundred percent positive outcome. For all of those kids, it's just thinking a little bit outside of the box. And, and again, the, the outcomes, the effectiveness were amazing. I mean, they were just incredible. Yeah. yeah. And it sounds like, you know, meeting a lot of those kids more basic needs might, you know, might help them, you know, do better in school, but also be better behaved. And that might might make things better for the teachers. I, I the, the most of my teacher friends are pretty stressed out, you know, that they've got really hard jobs really hard job. So, so possibly these things could make it better. There's no doubt. And, and, and I'll just say both of my grandparents taught for like 40 years, what they taught and retired in the mid eighties, what they're, if they were alive today and walked into our schools, it wouldn't even look familiar to them. The amount of work put on teachers, the amount of, of needs coming in the front door, you know, this notion of, well, you get your summers off. I don't know a teacher that takes a summer off between continuing education, preparing for next year, uh, working other jobs, you know, oh, well, it's a nine to five job. I don't know where that one is. I don't know what school that is because I've never seen it. It is a very, right. very difficult job. It's a very high stress job. And, and the, but the thing is, again, anything when, when I was the administrator, as I'm guiding schools now, anything we can do that can really help the kids Will, it will then help the staff. I work a lot with staff teams on self-care. I mean, educators are the worst at self-care. Perhaps of all the fields right. out there, they might be the worst. So for sure, uh, that is yeah. something that I'm cognizant of. And, and it also is a part of, of the books. And it's also part of the trainings and conversations that I have. 
Yeah, got got to help the teachers and the I guess the teachers have to help themselves, kind of like the oxygen uh, masks coming down in the airplane or something. But but hey, we're going to be back in just a little bit. We are going to continue this conversation with Dr. Brian Perlman after these messages. Listening to the Medical Beat. All right. Hey, we're back. I'm your host, Dr. Steve Harvey. Uh, this is the Medical Beat 97.1 FM Talk. Uh, we've been having a great show with Dr. Brian Perlman, and we're talking about uh, we're talking about education and the mental health of kids. Um, this is, I think, it's going to be a great topic for anyone who who uh, works as a teacher or anyone who is a student or has a kid who is a student or or whatever. If you missed the first part of this show, you can find us at uh, themedicalbeat.com, and we have our uh, podcast feed there, so you can uh, you can listen to our podcast if you uh, if you missed the first part of the show. So I think what one thing I want to ask Dr. Perlman here, and this is uh, this is something I, I I can't I can't believe I didn't bring this up earlier in the show, but I, I I noticed I noticed that there's a pandemic going on recently, Dr. Perlman. How is that affecting? Uh, I mean, it's obviously affecting it a lot in many ways. How how do you think that is affecting the kids? How's that affecting the teachers? How are schools dealing with this? What's uh, what's been going on with all that? Yeah, this is uh, definitely one of those things that I feel like education, our field, we're, we're very forward thinking. Uh, teachers generally are very well prepared and they're incredible planners. And what's really interesting about this whole COVID thing is that nobody really could have predicted this or planned for it. And to see, yeah. even if it's not perfect, and you might see on social media, sometimes parents complaining or different comments on, on what's going on with this understanding that literally you changed all of education in like the flip of a switch and we're able to move this uh, to a distance learning or an online learning or some combination of that, uh, like, yeah. like literally overnight and with no playbook because nobody has the playbook for a novel virus. By definition, it's new. Nobody knew that this would be right. something. Right. And, and you know, no, not many people, certainly none working in the education field, uh, were around for the Spanish flu. I, I can't imagine that any of those uh, folks are, are still around. So the interesting yeah. thing is, you know, my focus is a lot on trauma, mental health, challenging behaviors, self-care, all of those things. And, and we know from a lot of the research out there on adverse childhood experiences, which is one of the markers uh, for trauma, one of the ways that we, we say that, we knew before yeah. anyone knew what COVID was, that roughly two-thirds of us, so 66-ish percent of us, had a, an ACE score of at least one adverse childhood experience. So you could say two-thirds of us have some level or another um, of trauma history. My belief okay. is with COVID, knowing that, that people are getting sick, that people are dying, that our world literally overnight for the last at least significantly two months um, has, has certainly not helped the folks that are already dealing with trauma, already dealing with mental health uh, 
concerns like anxiety or depression that, that my belief is I'm pretty sure we classify all of us now, 100% of the people having yeah. some trauma-type impact. So for schools, it's not just what are we doing now. A lot of schools are ending now. Like I have lots of friends and, and certainly know quite a few folks who are ending now, you know, with this virtual thing or, you know, maybe aren't doing summer school in the conventional way. But now are really, again, forward-looking to say, what's school going to look like when we come back? Not just are we in person, are we in person and online, are we solely just online, but what are we doing for the kids, not just the kids, what are we doing for the grown-ups who have all faced this, just like, I mean, our our whole our whole lives have been interrupted. And what are we doing for the community? What are we doing for the families? So if we already knew that the majority, or a simple majority, if you add trauma, you add mental health concerns, the majority of kids coming in, and maybe the adults as well, pre-COVID already had concerns and issues in that domain. Now that that number is the, is is such it's almost everybody. If it isn't everybody, it's thinking about what are we doing to meet those needs? How are we, for some people, grieving the loss of two months, the loss of community members, the loss of, you know, the change in everything? This is one of those those big yeah. things that we're all going to remember. We're going to talk about what life was like pre-COVID, what it's like right. now. And, and maybe when we fast forward a year or two from now, uh, Dr. Harvey, maybe we're going to say uh-huh. there's some real positive things that came from this, but on the in the immediate time now and in, in the starting of the next school year, I mean, to, to meet the needs of all of the trauma and all the mental health concerns, I mean, it's just a, a, an astronomical number to think about the number of hands on deck, the amount of planning we're going to need to do so that so we can get to some level of some kind of normalcy and, and not just sweep yeah. it under the rug. If kids have feelings and have things that they want to talk through about it, we have to be equipped to have those those conversations because it's not like in the day where, you know, the, the bad news stories came on on one of like three or four television stations or the radio and you could turn it off now with phones and tablets and computers and, and the news cycle being all the time, nobody's been insulated from this. So I think that there's a yeah, lot, that, yeah. yeah, we need to be prepared yeah. for. Yeah. Yeah. The, the kids are just constantly bombarded with, with bad, scary news. And that's, that's gotta be rough. I, I I guess the other thing, I don't know, I guess, I guess also, you know, a lot of ki- kids are used to being around their friends in person. And now the kids are going through all this terrible stuff. And for the most part, they're not seeing their friends in person or, or they're hardly seeing their friends in person. So that that's got to be hard, too. You're absolutely right, Dr. Harvey. The, the thing that we know from the mental health side, and this is for everybody, but t- particularly so in kids is one of the worst things that we tell people to do when their anxiety is high, when they're depressed, when they're dealing with, you know, thoughts and traumatic type things. One of the worst things that we can do is, is isolate ourselves. We say that a year ago, 10 years ago, when there was no COVID that we definitely don't want people isolated because it it just never goes to a good place that way. And people can be spiraling and they could be in a really bad way and not have people around them to be able to help them. So, yeah, for, for a lot of our kids of all ages, just having it's so critically important to have those connections, to have those conversations, to be interacting with our peers, which which kind of is the opposite of what we're trying to do when you're trying to not have 
this virus spread further and further. So you, I mean, we go out for a walk, you know, my kids and I go out for a walk pretty much every day and, you know, we'll see playgrounds with the tape around it, right. Or the fields taped off in chain link fence closed. I walk by a school on our way and, and it's like a, a ghost town then. So you're exactly right. right. Definitely from the, some of the therapeutic, the mental health, the overcoming trauma, we want people to be around each other Trying to keep COVID from spreading makes that a little bit more challenging. Schools are doing online conversations. Kids are talking through phones and texting and gaming together. And I think that that certainly helps that we can still feel somewhat connected. But let's just be honest. It doesn't replace the fact of recess time or the lunchroom or hanging out in class together. There's no way that this is a suitable substitute but it's the best that we can be doing, I think, right now. Right, it's not, yeah. And they're they're kind of scared and lonely, and they're not allowed to hug their friends or anything, you know, or even see them in person. So that's, yeah, yeah. How about how about the teachers? Have you been hearing hearing back from some of the teachers? How are they doing through all this? You know, our our therapy practice had done like three webinars uh, or Q and A discussions, all to do with this topic. And the majority of folks that tuned into that were teachers or school social workers, school counselors, administrators, and even some parents. And we touched on those very things. And as we would get questions during our segments, it would be a lot of, hey, um, I, even though I'm an educator or I'm this, this is hard because I'm not used to teaching you know, my 15-year-old how to do their math. Or I'm a high school teacher. I'm not used to being the teacher of a six-year-old, right? Or I'm having a hard time with balance. Or parents in general, a parent who isn't even in this field, sending a note saying, you know, I'm really skilled at my profession. You know, maybe it's a doctor or a nurse or business person, attorney, whatever it is. And they're saying, I'm really struggling. I'm struggling with this home, uh, you know, this work-home type balance. I don't know what to do for my – I love my kids. I'm looking for the silver lining in this. But, like, I, I'm yeah. entertaining a kid when I'm on a conference call for work. And, and I guess if there's any positive thing out of this, Dr. Harvey, it's that just about every one of us is dealing with the same thing, is try to have those conversations uh, with your, with your uh, peers, uh, with others. Certainly, you know, our therapy practice has never been busier than it is right now. And it's a lot right. of people oh. reaching out yeah. saying that we're struggling we're struggling. Yeah. Our, our family's struggling. Our relationship's struggling. Yeah. And, and that's, look, it's from a business standpoint, that's outstanding. From a human life type of thing, that's certainly not. Yeah. We, we didn't want to be busier right. because of COVID yeah. and because of what people are dealing oh. with. So, yes, for the Exactly, yeah. Yeah. But, hey, we're, we're going to, when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit more about the book. And we have some other topics. And we'll be right back. For the life the tragedies claim No matter what you say Don't take away the pain That I feel inside I'm tired of all the lies Don't nobody know You're listening to The Medical Beat There we go This is The Medical Beat I'm your host Dr. Steve Harvey 97.1 FM Talk And today we've been talking To Dr. Brian Perlman a uh, an expert in education and therapy 
and all sorts of other things. And we've especially been talking about uh, his new book, Maslow Before Bloom, a, a book especially for people who are interested in education. And can you tell us, uh, can you tell us, Dr. Perlman, how do uh, how do people get their hands on a copy of this valuable commodity? Well, the valuable commodity, Dr. Harvey, can be purchased <laughs> uh, exclusively yes. at this point at, on Amazon.com. It's Maslow uh-huh. Before Bloom, Basic Human Needs Before Academics, and it actually was uh, released, I believe, on May 2nd, so it still has that new car smell about it, but definitely mm. going on to Amazon would be the best spot uh, to get that, and um, yeah, I'd love for people yeah. to read it and, and provide feedback, and my contact info's in there. I'd love to hear from them. Excellent. Amazon, I'm, I'm sure most of the listeners have heard of that, so Amazon, okay, <laughs> so that's Amazon Maslow Before Bloom. So hey, th- thank you so much for being here to to talk to us about this. And we're, we're going to keep Dr. Perlman on the line here while we talk about some other things. So we're going to switch gears now. And, and we're, we're actually going to, going to pick up on a previous conversation that we had in a, in a previous show uh, where we talked a little bit about Zoe D. Katz, uh, Dr. Zoe D. Katz, actually. And uh, for those of you who missed the previous show, uh, Dr. Zoe D. Katz is a licensed hypnotherapist uh, with all sorts of um, impressive-looking um, credentials and all sorts of impressive-looking uh, initials after her name. Uh, but the catch, of course, is that and, – and you know what the catch is, right, Dr. Perlman? T- tell us what the catch is. Well, I am thinking that the catch <laughs> may be that uh, Dr. Zoe DeCatz is not a human being after all. That is correct. Yes, yes, you are correct. Zoe, and actually Zoe de Katz is, is German for Zoe the cat. So, so Zoe is actually a cat. And uh, the, the story behind this is that Zoe's owner, uh, Dr. Steve Eichel, and Dr. Eichel is a perfectly legitimate uh, psychologist, was tired of, you know, seeing all these people with, you know, kind of purchasing these credentials and making themselves look like they had a lot of expertise that they didn't actually, uh, that they didn't actually have. Uh, so he managed to get his cat, uh, all these impressive sounding credentials. And so, so the part, the extension here is it turns out, it turns out that there are a lot of other examples of non-human animals uh, with impressive certifications. Case in point, case in point, Sassafras, a poodle, belonging to a physician in New York City, got a diploma from the American Association of Nutrition and Dietary Consultants. And George, who is a cat, was certified with the Board of Neurolinguistic Programming and also some hypnotherapy associations. And and the last example here is Ollie. Ollie is a dog uh, living with his owner in Australia. And he became the associate editor of a journal, of a of kind of a bogus journal, I'm sure, and and many many more examples. So um, so there, there's just all sorts of examples of animals getting these kind of certifications. So I, I'm going to ask you, Dr. Perlman, the same the same question I asked the other doctors. Do you have any feelings or opinions about uh, about animals acting as therapists? Well, um, yeah, <laughs> really caught you off guard. I don't know. I'm kind of like uh, my first book was whatever it takes. So 
Yeah. I'll go with uh-huh. that one. Whatever it takes. Hey, if it's effective <laughs> and and people are yeah. happy in, in whatever way, shape, or form, uh, kudos yeah. to them. That's great. They're very overachieving animals, right there. I, I guess so. Yeah, and I guess I guess my thinking is that I, I would think. I mean, don't you think a dog would be a better therapist than a cat? I am not a cat fan, so I would 100% <laughs> agree with you that definitely yeah. a dog would be uh, would be better as a therapist or hypnotherapist or spiritual advisor, whatever uh, whatever the need might be. I, I think so too. I'm, I'm kind of a cat person, but I, I do think dogs are a lot more a lot more empathetic. So yeah, so there's there's a lot more we could say about that, but we'll we'll just stop there. But hey, now we're going to talk about one other thing. So we're going to ask Chad. To play the thing here. Go ahead and play the thing, Chad. And now for a moment of science. 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 Yes, science. All right. So we're in the home stretch here. Just a, just one or two more minutes to show left. But there's one other thing I wanted to talk about, and uh, and this is that there are uh, some recent research that was done at the prestigious Carnegie Mellon University. Uh, analyzed Twitter content related to coronavirus. So, you know, so what they were looking at is people who were sending tweets related to coronavirus. And, and what they were looking at specifically is that they had some algorithm where they, they were able to do a pretty good job of determining uh, which, you know, which of these tweets were from actual people and which of these tweets were being sent out by bots, which ones of these were fake tweets. And after doing their analysis of 200 million tweets over a several-week period, they determined, now that this is going to blow your mind, they determined that 45% of those tweets were, uh, were sent out by bots. Does that blow your mind, Dr. Perlman? You know, that completely blows my mind. I wonder if maybe 25% of the tweets came from Zoe D. Katz. <laughs> That could be. That could be. Yeah, Zoe DeCats might have some opinions about that. That I, I wouldn't <laughs> wouldn't be the least bit surprised. Yeah, but that would probably be an authentic account, actually. But yeah, yeah, could that could be. And then I guess the other thing to take into account here is that you know, um, so forty five percent of the traffic of the internet traffic on Twitter is is from bots. Um, you know, the other fifty five percent are being influenced by the bogus 45%. You know, I, I think the 45% is steering the direction of the conversation and stirring things up. So I think it kind of messes up uh, the other 55% also. So that's, that's scary. And I guess also they've determined that it looks like a, like a large coordinated effort that's probably not the work of an individual, not the work of a corporation, but almost certainly the work of, uh, of a government. Uh, a foreign government, and I'll let you fill in the blanks which government that might be. Yeah, so I'll let you fill in the blanks what that might be. But anyway, we we got to go out now. Uh, thank you so much for listening to the show, uh, and thank you for being here, Dr. Perlman. And we'll be back next week. You've been listening to The Medical Beat. And then when you graduate.